Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When human beings think of worship, our natural inclination is to understand prayer as a bargain with God. If I praise you, Lord, this will happen for me. If we praise you correctly, we will prosper. If we praise you, our righteous goals will be achieved. From this idolatrous and self-serving fundamentalism proceeds all manner of evil. People who engage in wickedness imagine that they are pure. They approach God in prayer, thinking not of their sins but of others, by way of a delusional self-portrait of cultic purity. Such worshippers impose their will on their neighbor, often with violence. In Matthew, Jesus pushes back against these lies, showing us instead that true worship must be offered from a position of weakness. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 12 to 17. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 348 of the Bible as Literature podcast. In your forthcoming book on Hosea, Richard, you spend a lot of time explaining the prophet's critique of the temple cult, of worship, and the way in which the priests profit off of the sins of the people. We were talking about chapter 21 of Matthew, and while it absolutely zeroes in on the exchange or the bartering within the system of sacrifice, and that bartering is condemned, the context isn't Hosea specifically, but Isaiah and Jeremiah. In Hosea, this transactional quality of worship is a central issue, because the idea is if I do something bad, then I can win your favor back. Or if I experience something bad, I can get your favor back. If I give you a good thing, God, then you'll give me a good thing. Okay, that's how business works. I have something that's valuable to you, you have something that's valuable to me, and we trade and we both walk away happy. Now, of course, there's a whole bevy of assumptions behind this, such as <laughs> I'm going to give something to God that he wants or values. And this is why throughout the Hebrew Bible, God reminds us that everything already belongs to him. <laughs> You're not going to bring him something that he likes. And not only that, he reminds you in the beginning of Hosea that he's the one that gave you all this stuff that you value, that you're going to try to give to me in return. I mean, if I'm a child, am I going to curry my mother's favor by giving her the ice cream that she bought me? She doesn't even like ice cream. She bought it for me 
because she wanted to be nice and give me something. I'm not going to win her favor by giving her my ice cream. It doesn't work that way. This childish thinking that I do this, then I win God's favor. That's how it works. Now, people will take this in very subtle directions. Well, of course, sacrifices are not okay. Of course, you can't buy God's favor. But then they feel bad, like if I don't show up to church, is God going to be mad at me? Am I going to have to make up for that somehow? If I don't act like a good Christian, is that something that counts against me? How do I dig myself out of that hole? If I come to church and I do all the right things and I'm an upstanding person in my community, do I win the favor of God? This is all transactional thinking. And this is exactly the problem because what happens is you show up as a sinner, as having broken all the precepts that Jesus set down in the Sermon on the Mount, you show up as an adulterer, as a murderer, as an apostate, because you looked at a woman, you thought bad things of your brother, and you love money more than you love God, or you love money at all, which means you can't love God. You say, let's make a deal, God. And you come into the temple like that, You're already an abomination. You're not going to be able to sacrifice if you are the abomination because you pollute the sacrifice. There's no good that you can bring. How do we deal with the temple when there's nothing good that we can bring? The first lesson of the teaching of Abraham in Genesis is that God will provide for himself the lamb for the offering. God does not need our sacrifices. That's why our incense in Isaiah is a stench in his nostrils. This isn't a question of whether or not worship is good or bad. It's not a theological debate about liturgy. It's something much more primal and basic than that. It's a question of whether or not we are fully at the mercy of God's judgment, or we are still trying to impose our judgment. When you think that by exchanging money for your doves in your hometown so you can travel to Jerusalem and buy new doves to sacrifice, if you think that that exchange of your, quote, property in order to offer something in the temple, is a credit to you and can somehow buy you out of your unrighteousness, we have a problem. Is the purchase of a sacrifice really going to get you out of trouble for your wickedness? Or is your dependence on God to make the sacrifice for you to really understand that whether you bought the dove or not, whether you traded something of equal value in order to purchase that dove or not, if you don't truly understand that the dove already belongs to God, it's his possession, and he's loaning it to you to make the offering, if you don't really understand that, you fall in the trap of believing that this whole system of cultic sacrifice is a bartering system to get off the hook for your sins. And you fall into the trap of imagining that because you sacrificed white doves in the temple, now suddenly your garment is pure. Now suddenly you're innocent because you 
engaged in this transaction. But that's far from the case in Genesis because, in fact, the sacrifice of animals was already a sign of compromise because of sin, since we're not allowed to spill the blood of a living creature. The whole thing is an indication of compromise and sin. So how suddenly we understood it to be a mechanism of our righteousness, I mean, it's not hard to imagine how, because that's what paganism is. Hosea wrote, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The sacrifice is something that you do on your behalf without involving your brother or your sister to buy your righteousness. Whereas mercy is, as Paul writes, an act of love which one performs under obedience to God. Now one can say, oh, I'm sacrificing because I'm obedient to God. It's not it. Mercy. How are you merciful to your brother or your sister? How can you act with mercy in your dealings with others? That's what God wants. And if you really believe that because you sacrificed a pure white creature in the temple, that now you are pure and white, it actually works against mercy because you begin to believe that you are something, that you are the reference when Paul tells you that you are nothing. And that shapes how you treat others and it doesn't lead to mercy And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. So our Lord is walking into the entrance of the temple, like when you enter a Roman Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox church, and there are candles for sale in the entrance. That's where Jesus is right now in the temple. Instead of selling candles, they're selling doves. You buy a dove, and then you go offer the dove in sacrifice. So the minute he steps into this setting, Jesus manifests the wrath of the prophetic word of Isaiah and Jeremiah. It's not his wrath per se. This is not an emotional exchange. He is preaching, and he is making the wrath of those prophets, those teachings which come from his father, functional by upsetting the whole system of sacrifice in his first encounter with it. Remember, he's marching in victory from Jericho to Jerusalem like a Roman general, like David coming in victory. And this is his first encounter with the temple, which in the classical world is also the seat of government power. There was no separation in the mind of the people between church and state. So by confronting the temple, he's confronting David's hegemony. And in that first interaction, he is undermining the entire system of sacrificial worship. This was a very practical part of the sacrificial system. So I don't think that this is condemned simply because it's business, but because of the function it plays in the sacrificial system. If you lived in Jerusalem, then you just got a dove from your farm and brought it to the temple. No big whoop. But if you're coming from Alexandria on your once-in-a-lifetime trip to Jerusalem, you sold a dove for Alexandrian money 
took a boat to Jerusalem and changed your Alexandrian money into Jerusalem money, and then with your Jerusalem money bought a dove so you could sacrifice. You weren't trying to make money necessarily. There were people who were making money off of this, raising doves on their farm in Jerusalem. But the whole idea that people would come from all the way in Alexandria to wash away their sins by sacrificing a dove, that's the problem. Really? You're going to travel all the way from Alexandria on a boat so that you can somehow make a transaction with God on the spot so that you can go home a better person? No, that's not how it works. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus is not against simply business taking place in the temple. Doesn't mean when I walk into church and I owe my friend five bucks, I oh, sorry, I forgot to give you this five bucks, that I have somehow sinned and now Jesus is mad at me. What it means is that as part of the sacrificial system, this money changing is a problem, and it's specifically the money changing aspect and the buying and selling aspect that Jesus zeroes in on to manifest this prophetic action about the destruction of the temple. When Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is impressed with the widow's might, it's the same teaching as what we're encountering here in Matthew chapter 21, because the implication of buying and selling doves is that this poor widow at the entrance to the temple can't become righteous because she can't afford a dove. Your whole system of righteousness is based on human achievement. That's the problem. If you hear and study Torah in Alexandria and still think you need to go somewhere to become righteous, you are voiding the Torah. Just like Paul talks about voiding the cross in Galatians, it's the same thing. You're giving priority to something in the place of the real authority, which is God's wisdom. Do you really think your dove makes you righteous, or is obedience to the commandment what produces righteousness through you? It's not your righteousness. It's your dove, but it's not your righteousness. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. That's Isaiah but you are making it a robber's den. That's Jeremiah. And we try not to break up the verses, but I thought it was helpful, Richard, to point out that he's bringing together two prophetic books here. And we were looking at the etymology of the word robbers earlier, and we discovered something interesting, that in the Septuagint, which Matthew is quoting, it refers to thieves— but in the Hebrew text, the original Hebrew, it talks about those who commit violence in Jeremiah. In other words, you're coming into this place to make an offering. And this is Jeremiah chapter 7, in which we are ridiculed three times for referring to the temple made of stone as the temple of the Lord. So it's the supreme total hypocrisy of religious purity that's being condemned in Jeremiah. You imagine, again, that because you sacrificed a white dove, that you are pure and clean. 
when in fact you are abusing the foreigner, you are shedding blood in this place. So how can you expect me to accept your sacrifice or to tolerate you referring to this place as God's house? This is the thing. It's the hypocrisy of the religious community that's under condemnation, which leads to violence against the neighbor. And the violence ends with the ultimate violence of God against the temple. I've always said that this action ascribed to Jesus that he performs in the temple is a prophetic sign act, like Ezekiel performed when he walked around naked or when he set up the iron to show the destruction of Jerusalem. He is showing how the temple is going to be destroyed in the end. Because when Jesus mashes up these two verses from the prophets, we have Isaiah, my house shall be called the house of prayer, because there God is describing how this is going to be a house of prayer for all nations, that everyone is going to be coming here. Everyone in whatever state they come to, it's a house of prayers. A house of prayer is a house of supplication. When you pray to God, it means you are supplicating him. You're asking for his mercy. You aren't coming there and standing and declaring your own mercy. That's not prayer. This is what the temple is there for. You come here and you lay your sin before God and ask for his mercy. You don't go there and make a deal so that he has to show you mercy. But ye have made this a den of thieves. What does that mean? They show up having committed all these different crimes and abominations, according to Jeremiah. They're thieves. They're murderers. They're adulterers. They have sworn false oaths. So, you know, he just lines up the Ten Commandments that they've all broken. And you show up and say, all right, here's my dove. Uh, you know, better that you weren't murdering people than, than that you bring a dove. So how about you keep your dove and not murder people? That's what I'm looking for here. But you made it a place for those scoundrels, violent people or thieves. But ultimately, it's the people who have proven themselves unrighteous time and time again, and you made it a house for them. And God condemns that house because in Jeremiah, as he continues on from this verse, he says, look at the sacrificial center we had in Shiloh. Oh, you don't see it there anymore. Correct. That's because I destroyed it. Remember and be warned, O denizens of the temple in Jerusalem, that when I see you scoundrels thinking you're going to make a deal with me, I'm going to destroy my house, I'm going to level my house, and then you're going to have to understand that you come to me to ask for mercy, not to come and make a deal. This is underscored by the context, again, of the conquest of Jerusalem by the Messiah. It's being borne out in the examples that Matthew consistently gives that hint at the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem. Your point about supplication also bears out in the passage, because right away in verse 14 we hear, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. This is to draw a contrast between those who can afford to purchase an indulgence, to buy a dove, to buy their way out of their hypocrisy, which is impossible, and those who have no choice but to ask for mercy. If you enter the temple as one who is blind and lame and you have no choice but 
to call out to God, just like the two militia he recruited on the road to Jerusalem as new disciples, then you have the correct attitude when you enter the temple. You come to ask God to provide for you, not to flash your credit card in order to provide for yourself. We have to deprogram ourselves. You cannot earn the kingdom. You cannot earn grace. You cannot atone for your sins, but Jesus can offer you atonement. It's a fundamentally different way of looking at the situation in which we find ourselves as unrighteous. This action does seem kind of strange that the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. Is that what you do? You go to the temple so you can visit some guy who's walking around in the temple and then you leave the temple? That, when one is invested in this system of atonement, looks like blasphemy. Really? You're going to come into church, just talk to this guy and leave? You don't even come here to do your thing. And this, you know, might sound strange, but I'll tell you, I've seen it happen with my own eyes. I was at a church that was near a poor neighborhood, and there was a guy from the poor neighborhood who used to just show up for coffee hour to eat food. He never came to any services. He just showed up and ate food. And the priest was upset with him. You know, you don't come here just to come and eat food. If you want to come and pray with us, then feel free to eat with us. We place, naturally, as human beings, we place preconditions for sitting at the table, for entering into the temple, so that you can perform the correct actions, so that you leave righteous, so that you can sit at the table with us. And we know what happened between Peter and Paul when they had a dispute about this as well. You can't come in here and do something and say you did the right thing. You can't do it. All you can do is say, I know I did the wrong thing, and I need mercy, And that's what the blind and lame are coming and doing. And they're saying, we need you. We need your help. Like, you are our only hope. We have nothing but you. It's subversive the way Matthew puts Jesus in that position, because if you're interested in power in a worldly sense, you're going to go down the path of saying they recognized him as God, and that's why they went to him. But that's not what's going on in Matthew. On the contrary, Jesus is demonstrating to the rulers of the temple what their actual job is. Their actual job is not the business of buying and selling doves. Their actual job is to greet those who enter the temple with God's teaching. Jesus is healing them through instruction, which is the job of the Pharisee which is the job of the priest. It's your duty to take care of these people with the instruction. That's why we're here. And this again reflects the attitude of the Pharisaic movement in late antiquity, which was to reorient Judaism towards instruction and away from the temple cult. So this idea, which is central to the New Testament, was central to Pharisaic Judaism in late antiquity. Remember, the Pharisees wrote the New Testament. We have to keep coming back to this point. It's a very wise and very clever tradition, the biblical school. We're not here to kill animals. We're here to learn God's wisdom. And only those 
who recognize that they are in need of God's instruction are in a position to be healed because they're willing to accept the free handout that you can't purchase from the money changer in the vestibule. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself. Again, we see a distinction here between the Greek of the Septuagint and the original Hebrew. The root of the word is the same as the Arabic word aziz, which means mighty, powerful. Here, in the original Hebrew text of Psalm 8, the writer is saying that God's strength is manifest in the weakness of children and infants and babies. The Greek word here, which is enos, praise, enite ton kirion pandata ethni, right? Praise the Lord. That praise parallels this idea of strength, that God's glory, his kabod, his might, comes from the weakness of his subjects, because in their weakness, the power of his instruction is manifest. So the business deals happening in the vestibule are preventing God's strength from being made present to the people. The children, as they praise, they understand their weakness, their smallness, in front of the greatness of God. They actually understand something that others don't. You know, when you think you can arm wrestle God, then either you think you're unreasonably strong or you think God is unreasonably weak. There is this lack of perspective that the leaders have because they think of themselves as great. So therefore, they think they're closer to God than the other people and don't recognize how far from God they actually are as far as their correctness, their wisdom, and their obedience to God's law and the ability they have to impose law and duty on others. The fact that the chief priests and scribes are upset by Jesus' miracles, his wonderful things, you know, we often think that the chief priests, their job is a cultic function. They're there to kind of guide through the sacrifices and make sure that the system is following all the correct rules and taboos and all that kind of stuff. But Hosea recognizes that this, while an ancient belief, is incorrect. Because in Hosea chapter 4, Hosea continues to remind the people that the priest's main job is to teach, to teach Torah, to teach what is correct and what is incorrect. And the scribes, obviously, they're the experts in Torah as well. And so the experts in Torah, or at least the ones who are supposed to be experts in Torah, the chief priests and the scribes are upset because they think that their knowledge has made them better. Instead of the correct reading, which is that their understanding of Scripture should make them understand that they are as bad as anyone else, at least, because they falter in their duty to God in the way that they carry it out, and they overestimate their own ability to be righteous and to make this deal. 
And ultimately, the condemnation that Hosea levels against the priests is that they're profiting from this because every sacrifice you bring to the temple, the priests get a cut. So they actually profit in a substantial way, in a tangible way, from multiplying sacrifices and multiplying sins. But Jesus says that God has prepared the praise that he wants to hear from those who are weakest, who understand that they have no power, that all they can do is just make a cry without words, like anyone who's heard an infant or a suckling child make. Those sounds on the airplane that everyone hates to hear, those are the sounds of praise to God because they are a sound of one in need who is not able to provide for themselves, one who completely counts on God for everything that goes into their mouth for food, for every day of life that they have. It's completely dependent on God. The only praise that God values is from the one who understands that he or she depends 100% on God, just like the lame and the blind who came to Jesus in the temple. It's like Father Paul always says, the only sound a sheep can make is, bah, (laughs) there's nothing else to contribute except your obedience. That's the trust. That's the faith of Abraham. And it's interesting here, just to continue along the lines of a point you just made, the historical Pharisee, the writer, is using the hypocrisy of the literary Pharisee to challenge his fellow teachers in late antiquity not to preach from a position of self-righteousness. He is reminding his fellow teachers that when people come to the temple, they're not coming because we're holy or because we can sell them holiness It doesn't even matter why they're coming. The question is, why did God put us here? To feed them and to care for them with his teaching. Above all else, the duty of the scribe, the Pharisee, the cultic priest, the modern pastor, minister, teacher, priest, our duty is to teach, to feed the people the bread of life. Whenever we lose sight of this and anything else becomes a higher priority, we shut our brothers and sisters out of the kingdom. That's exactly what the pillars did in the Pauline epistles. They shut everybody out of the kingdom by making a priority of cultic sacrifice and identity and tribe. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. This rings in my ears, Richard, again, as militaristic metaphor. He came in, he attacked, and then he withdrew to his camp outside the city to plan the next move. And the place that he decided to camp was Bethany, Bethany, which is the house of the poor where he decided to lodge was with the poor and not with the scribes and the Pharisees in Jerusalem. He went to the place where he was needed. He went to the place where he could do his work. He went to the place where one could hear the perfected praise of 
the children, the poor, who depend on God for everything they have, and they have nothing to buy his favor with. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.